The Bob Murphy Show, episode 283. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to another episode of the bob murphy show today we're going to be speaking with oren cass let me read just a little bit of his official bio. So Oren Kass is the executive director of American Compass and author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, which was in 2018. He's a contributing opinion writer for the Financial Times, and his work also appears regularly in publications, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Now, a little bit from his previous background to kind of give you an idea where he's coming from. From 2005 to 2015, Oren worked as a management consultant in Bain & Company's Boston and Delhi offices, and during this period, he also earned his J.D. magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, where he was elected vice president and treasurer of the Harvard Law Review and oversaw the journal's budget and operations. While still in law school, Oren also became domestic policy director for Governor Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign, editing and producing the campaign's jobs book, and developing its domestic policy strategy proposals and research. He joined the Manhattan Institute as a senior fellow in 2015 and became a prolific scholar, publishing more than 15 reports for the Manhattan Institute and editing its popular Issues 2016 and Issues 2020 series. He founded American Compass at the start of 2020. So what we are discussing specifically in this episode of The Bob Murphy Show is American Compass recently put out a booklet that's 112 pages long. I guess they call it a handbook titled Rebuilding American Capitalism, A Handbook for Conservative Policymakers. And let me just read from the foreword a little bit. What has happened to capitalism in America? Businesses still pursue profit, yes, but not in ways that advance the public interest. Over the past 50 years, corporate profits rose by 185%. Wages rose by 1%. American industry lost its technological edge from semiconductors to commercial aerospace to robotics. Investments stalled, so much so that the entire corporate sector became a net lender, handing money back to financial markets faster than it tapped those markets for capital to invest. As American Affairs editor Julius Crenn has observed, if $1 trillion in annual stock buybacks are to be taken at face value and, quote, there are, in fact, no better investments to be made, it calls into question the viability of the free market capitalist system itself, end quote. Okay, so I'll stop reading from the foreword to this handbook. You get an idea where they're coming from. So. Oren, for a while in his career, was um, considered to be an ally of right-wing free market economist types. And then specifically with his founding of American Compass and coming out against things like free trade and even going after big guns in the laissez-faire economist uh, pantheon like Hayek and so forth, he's earned the ire of a lot of my colleagues, to be frank. And so when Oren came on my radar, it was for different issues. And, and I'm going to talk, I won't go over it now in this intro, this bio, because I bring it up with Oren when the interview starts. Okay. But let me just say for the record, because I've seen this coming from a lot of my colleagues on Twitter and whatever, when Oren would say something challenging the case for free trade or saying, well, Hayek said this and blah, blah, and people just hold it home up like he's an utter buffoon and an idiot. and. I'm just going to tell you guys, that's not what's going on here. All right. You can have other hypotheses, even if they're not flattering to Warren if you want. But I'm just telling you, it's not that he's stupid. And it's not that, oh, if you just crack a book, then you understand the case for free trade. That's not what's going on here. And if you want to just pretend that that is what's going on and gee, it's just the people who disagree with us are all idiots. Go ahead. But that you're not doing yourself any favors. Okay. To be clear, I'm not in favor of tariffs. I'm not saying his policy conclusions are right. I'm saying to just dismiss his perspective out of hand and say, nope, nope, there's nothing we need to be worried about in terms of, you know, what's happened in the United States over the last 30 years. It's neoliberalism for the win or whatever you want to say. That's, I think, inaccurate. And also, at the very least, you're 
going to be continually surprised at how many people, quote, get seduced by rival ideologies or perspectives. Okay, so now they kind of know where I'm coming from. Maybe that'll help you understand the tone I take and the posture I have in this discussion with Oren Cass. Here it is. Hope you like it. Oren, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I would have already given a little bit of an introduction to people, but I think where we should start is let's do some of the greatest hits and how I know of you and why I know that even though I think you and I are going to disagree in 20 minutes about like tariff policy and stuff like that, that it's not because you had this uh, hostility towards free markets or that you're some far left radical nut job kind of thing. I mean, you could be a nut job, but it wouldn't be a far left nut job. And so how you came onto my radar was at least two separate. Th- I think there was actually three, but the third one's eluding me at the book. But it had to do with the climate change stuff and then the Obamacare. So again, partly just because it's interesting in and of itself, but also it's like to warm the audience up to realize like that you used to be one of my go-to guys as far as like free market policy analysis. Do you remember? So it was, I did it when I was at the Institute for Energy Research. I did a three-part series on your, there was some policy document and it was one of the tidbits you had discovered was that the people warning about all these huge damages from future climate change, they were doing stuff as silly as like looking at like, oh, when Philadelphia has temperatures that were no hotter than Antonio, they're going to have like thousands of old people dying every summer. And you were saying, well, no, by the year 2075, surely Philadelphia will have as much air conditioning as Antonio does now in whatever, 2012. So am I jogging your memory? Do you remember what I'm talking about, that report that you did? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that was a really fun project. And I'm a pretty data-driven guy. We may disagree on all sorts of things, but I do try to take very seriously an appreciation of the power of, of markets and also an insistence on really sort of working from facts as a starting point. And so, you know, that had in common both some of the work I'd done in the past uh, at the Manhattan Institute as you mentioned, on climate change and then also on healthcare policy. On climate change, what I always found so striking is I don't have any problem with climate science. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure there are great fights within the, <laughs> among the scientists, and it's not all right. But generally speaking, if you look at the actual scientific reports, even those coming from the UN, the depiction of what will happen in the physical world as a result of climate change is quite measured. It is a potentially significant increase in temperatures and corresponding rises of several feet in sea levels, some effects on biodiversity, potentially strengthening of storms in in various places and so forth. All of the action on the policy front and all of what I would call sort of the catastrophism that you hear coming from the left isn't about those physical changes. It's another layer that has nothing to do with the science that gets put on top that attempts to convert those changes in our physical world into effects on human society. And of course, to do that, you have to make all sorts of assumptions. And the, in my mind, stunning assumption that they make, because they have to, to get the results they want, is what's called no adaptation. They assume as a starting point that nothing changes in the human society and technology and the way we might behave in response to changes in temperature. And so the sort of quintessential example of this, as you mentioned, is in any cost-benefit analysis, the way you get really big numbers is you come up with a story about how a lot of people are going to die, and that's obviously a, a massive cost. And so the main cost driver in these government reports, especially during the Obama administration, were actually coming up with theories about how the the increased heat was going to kill tens and and hundreds of thousands of people. Now, that raised a red flag for me. It seems wildly implausible that an an increase of of several degrees in temperature would, over a century, would kill hundreds of thousands of people. And so what you find is that they take these models that look in the very micro, year over year, on days when it's slightly hotter, do you see slightly higher mortality rates? And the answer is yes, you do. And they say, well, okay, what if it was four degrees hotter every day? What would the increase in mortality rate be? And of course, you can generate very high estimates that way. But when you sense check that, when you say, okay, gosh, so what are you saying the mortality rate is going to be in Philadelphia when it's four degrees hotter there? Well, 
presumably it's not going to be higher than the mortality rate in New Orleans today, where it's even hotter. And yet, using that methodology, you would find they're saying mortality rates are going to be 50, 70 times higher in these northern cities in the future than they are in southern cities today. And that's obviously totally implausible. And in fact, what you'll sometimes find is is the good studies will also then try to estimate, well, what if we assume some adaptation? And when they assume some adaptation, the impact goes away completely. And in some cases, even flips to negative because the result of it getting hotter is people install air conditioning and that (laughs) then insulates them from the effect of hot days. And so I found that to be just a really important, that was the single largest cost that the Obama administration had found as the sort of justification for their climate policy. And when you realize it's not just invented, but impossible, it sort of calls into question at least the ideological element of the project. Right. And what was interesting to me about that element was, and so folks, again, just you get it. So Oren was the one who dug into these reports and realized, wait, this is how they're getting these numbers. You know, and then I, with my perch, I was trying to amplify those results, you know, to just realize, oh yeah. And the same thing, like you're saying, Oren, with me, I had assumed going into this stuff that I was going to have to rely on like heritage foundation data sets or something if I want. And no, all I had to do was quote from like, like William Nordhaus. That was my go-to guy. Like his models and stuff showed that, oh, the UN's 1.5 degrees Celsius target would be worse for humanity than if the governments of the world did nothing about climate change. Like it was just so obvious jumping out of his results. And yet he wasn't saying that because he, you know, <laughs> it would have been awkward for him. But I was certainly willing to quote his own, his, you know, he's the folks, the Nobel Prize winner of, for his work on climate change economics. But what was interesting, Warren, yeah. is I could no, see I- how, sorry, did you want to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's a great example, though, when they try to do these economic models that estimate sort of, you know, what's going to happen as a percent of GDP, they'll say cost of GDP in 2100 is, let's say, 3% of GDP. And I think it's really important to take two lessons from that, to recognize both. That's a real cost. That <laughs> That's a real argument for, if nothing else, looking to mitigate climate change where we can, particularly investing in adaptation to try to reduce that cost while at the same time recognizing that 3% of GDP in 2100 means the difference between being 6.5 times wealthier than we are today and 6.6 times wealthier than today. Or it means we'll be as wealthy in 2102 as we wanted to be in 2100. And so it's a Mm -hmm. case for, not for saying climate change isn't real or, or not for saying we shouldn't care about it or do anything, but for rejecting this sort of catastrophism that, you know, as Bernie Sanders likes to say, the habitability of the earth is being called into question. Yeah, I like that too, because also it's redistributing resources from poor people today to people who are going to be living like the Jetsons in the year 2100. And it's like normally progressives don't like to take from poor people and give to super rich people, but yet that's what a lot of the climate policy would be doing. Again, not according to Orrin Cass's model, but according to the Nobel Prize winning models of the people who are like the founders in this field. I don't know if you know, I don't want to get back because I know we want to get into the other stuff or, but what was interesting is during my tenure at the Institute for Energy Research, I saw the other side's argument change. In the beginning, it was look at the peer-reviewed research. And then over time, as the peer-reviewed research didn't support what they wanted, then it was, well, you know how many flaws there are in these economics models. I mean, Nordhaus is, a, is you know, a clown. And it, and it was just funny how things flipped over time. And that even, so what they meant by the peer-reviewed research, obviously after a while meant like the physical science, not anything that economists have peer reviewed because those aren't giving us the results we need. And so it was clear how, I'm not questioning the individual scientists involved, but like the activists and the movement and the, you know, the push behind the policies, clearly they kept moving the goalposts like crazy during the whole debate. So switching that, do you want to just give a little teaser? I remember that Tom Woods and I, for our show Contra Krugman, had you come on when all the, you know, Obamacare, I guess, had just been phased in and we had some preliminary results and people were trying to argue, like Krugman, that's why it was relevant for you to be on our show, was trying to argue that, oh, it's all these Republican governors who aren't going along with the Medicaid expansion or whatever the heck it was. And you actually said, no, it's the other way around. Do you remember any of those details? It's actually a somewhat parallel issue where in the Obamacare debate, both as it was being passed and then as there was discussion of repealing it, 
the argument that got spun up on the left to defend the Obama approach was that if you don't do this, tens of thousands of people are going to die. And this was very directly the argument that Paul Krugman was advancing. And so, again, I thought it was just very useful to go back to the studies and say, like, <laughs> where on earth did this number come from? And, and you sort of find this one study that in the two years after Massachusetts did a certain expansion, they seem to have found this slightly lower mortality rate. But then you also find that kind of the gold standard study of Medicaid expansion, which was done in Oregon, found no effect on physical health over two years. And then I just did a sort of back of the envelope saying, well, some states have expanded Medicaid and others haven't. And it actually turned out that mortality had risen faster in, in the states that had expanded Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So I think as with climate change, I don't see this as some sort of like slam dunk argument that we should do nothing. I think we need healthcare policy. We need to make sure that people have good coverage and access to good healthcare at the end of the day. But I think it's really important to reject using, when possible, their own data, the fantastical catastrophism that progressives have a habit of deploying in what they will claim is sort of evidence-based policy when, in fact, it is a fairly shameful form of propaganda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Oregon study, folks, I'll try to dig it up and put it in the show notes page because that was just classic where, I don't know if you know this, Oren, but the background of that, so folks, it was like a randomized control trial, which is like, literally, they were calling it the gold standard of this guy because normally you don't want to be gambling with people's lives and that sort of thing. But with this, like they had the funds to expand Medicaid el eligibility, but not enough for like the whole population that would need it. And so they had like a lottery system. And so the researchers realized, oh, this is great, you know, for, and there was a study, it was even, it was, do you remember Warren, the Obamacare architect guy that got in trouble? Like, cause he said something about we're relying on the stupidity of the American voter. Yes. You know which guy I'm talking about? Do you I know think his name is Jonathan Gruber. Yeah, yes, Gruber. Yeah. So Gruber was involved, folks, with this study that they yes. were doing. Like they realized ex ante, this is going to be a great test in terms of social science. You rarely get an opportunity like this. And they were so certain. And there were, I don't know if it was Vox at the time, but it was it was either Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein. Unfortunately, I can't remember. In my mind, they're like they merged in the same guy. But when it first came out, they were touting this and they saying, ah, yes, when it was like one year underway. And they're saying, and the early results look good. Like there's much more pickup and, you know, going and seeing doctor visits and stuff when they, who, who would have thought that if the government helps pay your medical bills, you'll get better health outcomes. Ha ha, you idiot right wingers. And then after the two years had passed and they looked at the, and there was no statistically significant injury. There was something like mental health was better. Like they had less anxiety, presumably because their medical bills now are being covered. And so, but in terms of any sort of physical measure that they put in the, what the study was tracking there was no appreciable difference between the control group and the group that got the lotto award. And it was hilarious to see the same guy. Again, I don't remember who it was, but it was truly the same guy. I'm not just saying like one person from their camp. No, it was literally the same guy who called the gold standard when it looked like it was going to support his views. Later when it didn't, he listed all the reasons. This wasn't really a good study. Like look at all the stuff it left out. You couldn't yes. expect someone's diabetes to turn around in two years. Like that... And it was just yeah. like, oh, come on. Do you yes, literally no, call it a gold standard 18 months that's, ago? That's exactly right. I, I've actually <laughs> written a long essay on this called, mm. using this specific example called policy-based evidence-making. So I'll send you the link to include oh, in the show notes. Oh, that's also, great. Very good. To your point, it was after one year, the subjective results looked great. And so people just doubled down on it. And then after two years, the results did not show what they wanted. And so they suddenly dismissed the study. The other thing that was so funny about it, and this came up in the Krugman context, is that the study they were using to defend Medicaid's extraordinary outcomes in Massachusetts was far less well-powered and over the exact same time period. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, it was literally just a kind of looking out on the crowd and picking out your friends. And it's unfortunate because obviously it, it is the case that people benefit from access to health care. And it would just be nice if you could have that discussion in a measured way, trying mm -hmm. to understand what really determines the difference and what is a good allocation of resources instead of, as you were describing, these sort of, quote, explainers just sort of scrambling through all the studies to find one that they can point to as if they have discovered the truth and everyone else must be a moron. Mm -hmm. What I want to stress for the folks at home is in these debates, you don't have to be an actual liar or even like even intellectually dishonest per se at any given day of the week. So the first thing we were talking about, the reason 
you could understand like someone who was just looking at hard numbers or whatever and looking where they came up with the death toll for like Philadelphia, if that was the city, I, I might have just made that up, but it, you know, some Northern city and they weren't just pulling numbers out of the air. They were looking at empirical, like when temperature goes up a little bit right now in whatever, 2017, 18 extra old people die or something. But then they were just multiplying that and saying, so therefore, if the temperature goes up by two degrees Celsius, then you can imagine how many tens of thousands, you know what I mean? So like they weren't just literally making the number up, but they picked it. And then, like you said, did something that as an economist or anyone with common sense could realize, well, no, that little linear relationship is clearly not going to hold over the whole range you just multiplied it by. But whereas they could plausibly say, well, we don't know what the adaptation, how do we know? You know, we could, well, that's not the complex thing to model here. We're just sticking to the numbers. And then with this thing, the guy, whether, again, whether it was Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein, I remember in the postscript, all the flaws or shortcomings of the study they listed were legitimate shortcomings. You know what I mean? So it wasn't that this two-year study was obviously the end of the field and the you know, research closer. So it wasn't that they were just making up stuff. Like, yes, those, but those were flaws with the study ex ante when you were calling it the gold standard. So yeah. that's the inconsistency. It's not... Yeah. They were just making up stuff about the study that wasn't true in terms of shortcomings. Right. No, that's right. And, and I mean, that's actually a good segue to the, the economics conversation, or, or at least my point of view on it, sure. which is yeah, that go ahead. a lot of this does come down to the models. It's not about people making up numbers or falsifying data or something. It's about understanding that the claims that come out the other side that can sound so important and extraordinary aren't just statements of actual facts and data. They have to be run through a model that is conceptually based on how you want to see the world and often what result you want to get, and then invariably rely on a series of assumptions that are themselves, or at least can be, very ideologically driven. And so this is something, and this is something we're working on now, that frankly you see in the trade context as well, where you'll see these claims that oh, you know, expanded free trade has generated $2 trillion of benefits. And it's really important to understand that there is no actual government data that shows $2 trillion of benefits. There is some great underlying data about the actual performance of the economy and then assumptions stacked upon assumptions stacked upon model design choices that spit out a $2 trillion number. But to believe that's true, it turns out you actually have to believe an awful lot of other things that may or may not be true. And so that's where I think it's really important to, to pressure test those things and say, wait a minute, does that align with our intuition? What do you have to believe that's true? And do we think that that's a good description of the economic reality that we see? Okay, yeah, so this is a great, yeah, I agree with you. Let, let's get into the meat of this. And yeah, let's go right for it. There's a couple of things too, like with the wage, workers' wages. But yeah, let's focus on the trade because I want to make sure we have time. We don't run out at the clock at the end here. Because this is the big one. And this is where certainly, again, just cards on the table. I would be shocked if by the end of this conversation, you've convinced me to be in favor of tariffs. <laughs> but I do want to understand where you and I, what are we disagreeing upon? Because I know it's, you know, we're both trying to be open-minded about this and it's not like we have skin in the game. So can you just maybe for the folks at home, give your background as to, and let me just say again for the audience, the explanation here is not going to be Orrin Cass is unfamiliar with the case for free trade. That's just not, if that's what you think, and I've seen people on Twitter, like some of my colleagues alluding to that, like, oh, this guy's an idiot. He needs to go read Bastia or something. And that's not what's going on here. And so let's just be careful and see. So I'm just curious, Orrin, can you give, like, did you ever tepidly believe in free trade until you learned more about, or like from the beginning when you saw it presented in college, you thought, you know, smelled a rat. I'm just curious just to know where you're coming from before we get into the specifics? Yeah, I mean, I went through sort of very conventional undergraduate economics <laughs> training. I've actually written about this that I have, you know, I still have the policy memo I was assigned to write freshman fall in, in my Econ 101 class on the case for free trade. And it mm -hmm. sort of does an exemplary job spouting exactly what is taught about how this is good and this is how comparative advantage works. And Anybody who loses a job will find a better one as a result, basically. And I don't have the graded version. Pretty sure I received an A. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I'm sorry, or can I stop you? So there it was like the equivalent of, because that's what I used to say when I taught, as I told students, my goal here is not to convince you to believe in this, but just like in a philosophy class, like if they teach, this is what Jeremy Bentham thought, like on an essay, you need to be able to reproduce 
what was Bentham's argument for utilitarian or whatever. Is that what your professor was having you do? Like make the case for free trade? And then yeah, you, I don't, you know, I don't remember if the assignment was make the case or make whatever argument you want about it. But, okay. but certainly that sort of standard case for is, is what was being taught. Because I okay. think it's important to say in, in economics courses, economics in this country is not taught like philosophy, <laughs> where you need to understand the different points of view and, and be able to repeat them all. It is taught as a, almost as a hard science in which the correct answer is that comparative advantage works and free trade will increase well-being. I mean, okay. I think you would be very hard-pressed as an undergraduate to do well in an economics course by saying, here's why comparative advantage does not work. Certainly, you wouldn't find it in the textbook. Right. So did, did you believe it at the time? Or were you just writing, saying, this is what I know the professor wants to hear, but actually I see holes in the argument? Yeah, I think I probably believed it. I don't think I okay. really thought about it too hard. I think it certainly made superficial sense. And so sort of did the standard economic coursework. Although I did ultimately admittedly get a bit fed up with it and ended up majoring in political economy rather than economics. Okay. In part because I think it does invite a slightly broader view of how these types of things operate. But, you know, then also went off and did a kind of very conventional management consulting type job. After college, again, found some things that I was a bit unimpressed with how they operated in the private sector, including with private equity, but honestly still wasn't sort of thinking about it especially hard or, or especially skeptical about it. Can I ask you, this is really interesting, man. I just love knowing like how do people end up where they, so do you mean like they would come in and buy up a firm and then lay everybody off and sell the parts for scrap? Is that, is that what you mean? Or do you mean something else? Yeah, I mean, well, so I was working at Bain & Company, which mm -hmm. gets confused with Bain Capital, the private equity firm, but it's not. It's a conventional consulting firm. I always did sort of more conventional consulting work, helping to advise companies more so on growth strategy, sometimes on cost cutting. But even then, I think looking at what are the questions businesses are asking? How are they making their investment decisions? I'll at least say I, I have a great deal of sympathy for the sort of short-termism hypothesis mm -hmm. <laughs> and a concern okay. that what motivates executives is not necessarily aligned with the well-being of the firm or even shareholders in the medium to long term. But also Bain and, and really all the major consulting firms have very robust private equity consulting practices where the private equity firms will bring them in to kind of do the diligence on a potential transaction. And so I never did that directly, but certainly knew lots of people who were working on that intensively and was always struck by the extent to which the private equity model seemed to be more one of financial engineering than one of actually figuring out how to better run and grow a company. That was my impression. So sort of started to get a flavor for some of that. For me, particularly on this sort of trade and, and economic theory, the most important sort of moment of realization and rethinking came when I was working for then Governor Romney on his 2012 presidential campaign. And I was his domestic policy director and we sort of treated most job-related issues there. So trade, we actually treated as a domestic policy issue, which mm -hmm. is in itself maybe somewhat interesting. But I had that portfolio and sort of initially developed a fairly standard, here's what, Republican economic thinking is on trade. And he very forthrightly said, yeah, this is all fine, but what are we going to do about China? Um, mm -hmm. Because none of this is working vis-a-vis -vis China. And so I was sort of given the task of going off and figuring out, well, what else is there to say about China? And discovered that on the right of center, there was nothing. There was this very superficial commitment to, well, we all have already proved that free trade is good, so surely it is good here as well. And if you say anything else, it must be that you don't understand economics. Okay, can and, I stop you, Orrin? Yeah. What specific, was it just the trade deficit per se, or was it like them stealing trade secrets and things? Or no, it, it was the latter. It was the recognition that China was playing by none of the rules okay. of free trade as commonly understood, that it was stealing intellectual property, manipulating its currency, subsidizing its firms, not providing market access to American firms, you know, making joint ventures and technology transfer a prerequisite for entering its market. And that as a result, I think the deficit that you see is in part a result of many of those behaviors. 
in addition to the fact that just trade at the scale of U.S.-China trade with countries at such different stages of development, I think, kind of inherently raises a, a number of issues. And so for me, it was a sort of emperor has no clothes kind of situation. The more I studied it, the more it seemed to me there clearly were very real problems here. And yet the entire right of center was just sort of standing there applauding for, for, mm. for <laughs> what seemed to be a fairly overweight and unclothed <laughs> executive walking down the street. And mm -hmm. partly on the substance, this was therefore a very interesting issue that I, I wanted to do more work on. But also, I think it spoke to what I have frequently criticized as, as what I see as a real problem of market fundamentalism on the right, that it wasn't that conservatives and, and, and economists were really doing very serious, thoughtful work on this, building strong arguments that came to a different conclusion. It was that there was simply no analysis being done. There was just mm -hmm. a sort of presumption that someone had done the work and we knew this to be the true, you know, we knew this to be true. Mm -hmm. And that should be the end of the story. So really, on, on a lot of topics, my work since then has been influenced by my <laughs> sneaking suspicion that that's probably the case in a lot of areas. And the more work I do, the more I find that it is. Well, yeah, I mean, I just recently had a thing where somebody had shared, you know, just so you understand, or I understand the tendency that you're talking about or the trait. Somebody had shared a clip from Milton... So sorry, it was Josh Hawley. Has he been talking tough about China lately? Does that sound yes. right? So somebody was disparaging a clip from him and the way the person like was sort of sending him back to school is he had some clip from Milton Friedman. And what was ironic is I played the clip and Friedman had clearly just said something that was demonstrably false. Like he said something, it was, uh, now each of you in your own conduct of a household, you would rather get more goods in exchange for your exports, right? Anyone knows that. And I'm not doing my great Milton Friedman. If he gave me a minute, I'd do a better impression. And I just pointed out to people, I said, no, just think about what he's saying. That's absolutely not true. That if your household sold more goods than it bought, that means you saved. So he's not proving, you know what I mean? He was like mixing up two things. He was mixing up us like for a given bushel of wheat, we export, how many cars do we get? Yeah. That's what he was focusing on. And then he was thinking that proved a trade deficit was good. Yeah, and I was saying, well, no, if, if our goods had a higher purchasing power, better terms of trade, that it would still be balanced. That wouldn't mean a trade deficit. It would just mean we get more stuff in exchange for what we export. And those are two completely separate. You know what I mean? And yes. you get, you know, Freeman's making a, a speech and, you know, he flubbed that. Okay, fine. I'm not saying Freeman's an idiot. But what was amazing to me was the pushback on Twitter I was getting from other trained economists telling me matter-of-factly I was an idiot and giving me the case for free trade. And I was like, yeah, I've literally written book chapters on that. I understand what you're saying. This is, you know, Friedman's. So anyway, yeah, there's like the refusal, they're just assuming, oh, if you're disagreeing with me, it must be because you don't know the first thing about this topic. Yeah, and I think Hayek is another great example of this. I've become especially fond of citing what I think is just an especially fascinating illustration because rarely do ideologues make falsifiable predictions. They, mm -hmm. they are fairly wise not to. Hayek has this extraordinary speech from 1960 reproduced as a book chapter. It's actually called Why I Am Not a Conservative, which mm -hmm. I always also highlight for the fact that like conservatives <laughs> do have a right to think differently about these things than right, Hayek right, did. Right. But Hayek's core argument is that basically trying to explain the self-regulating market, but he doesn't explain it. He says proudly that the self-regulating market is something that one can simply have faith in, even if one can't explain it. And the problem with conservatives is that they're not comfortable just having faith that the self-regulating market is going to sort of bring things into balance. And then he specifically cites as an example that the self-regulating market brings exports and imports into balance. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, at 1960, the remarkable thing is it's exactly the midpoint of two decades in which imports and exports were in balance. Mm. So he may very well have been describing something that was happening at the time, but I think it's very difficult to look at the global economy of the last 20 years and say that a theory that requires exports and imports to, of their own accord, come into balance, even if you can't explain why, if that's your theory, it's probably not quite the right theory at this point. Yeah, I think so. Ideally, I would have done six hours of research to be able to say this with utter comment, but I think partly what may be going on there, Orrin, is 
I know for a fact, once the U.S. under Nixon totally left the gold standard, you know, ended Bretton Woods, the trade deficits got a lot bigger. And so there, I think there's an argument about under a gold standard, like if you picture literally just gold coins being the currency of the world, that it makes sense if there's a consistent trade deficit and one people's like they're just, you know, this is like David Hume's old argument, are stocking up gold coins, you would expect prices quoted in gold ounces to start going up in that country and there'd be a natural reverse mechanism. Whereas if it's just the U.S. issuing more dollars and that's come to be the reserve currency, other countries are like, oh yeah, we'd like to have some more treasury bills or bonds, whatever. Here's some cars. Like to explain like, what, what are we giving yes. you in exchange for all this extra government debt you're issuing? And, and so that, I think, and, and so in conjunction with leaving the gold standard, also the U.S. federal government running up $32 trillion or whatever oh, the numbers in debt. Totally agree. My point is just that is the world we now live in. So if, if you want to say, well, we're going to go back to the gold standard and then do X, that's fine. What you can't do is look at the world today and say, well, we must adhere to Hayek's principle that he right, issued right. in 1960 because per your argument, you would have to acknowledge this isn't what he was talking about. Right. And also too relevant is I think you and I probably both agree those two things I said like, I don't know what your stance is on monetary, but I certainly think going off the gold standard to replace it with unlimited, you know, fiat issuance was bad. And the government running up $32 trillion in debt was also bad. And so if someone's like, oh, no, the reason we had those trade deficits is because now the Fed just has the printing press with no strings attached and the government ran up a $32 trillion debt. That's not consolation. You know what I mean? Like those aren't offsetting good things in case you're squeamish about the trade deficit. So I can right. see all right, why don't we jump to the chase though? So how do you respond if I say something like, or, you know, I probably largely agree with you. And by the way, your stats on the manufacturing stuff, I thought you were wrong at first because when I did my politically incorrect guide to capitalism, which came out in 2007, I believe, I had a chapter on free trade and stuff. And one of the like objections to capitalism was, oh, we're outsourcing all of our manufacturing jobs. And one of my rebuttals was to say, no, the U.S. is just becoming more efficient. Like, like we manufacture more stuff now than we did 30 years ago, but it takes fewer workers, just like we grow more food than we did in 1900, and it takes fewer workers to do so. And I was right at the time, but then when you said our manufacturing output's lower, so I thought you were wrong, and I look at, no, you, you're right. <laughs> so there really was a sharp turnaround that actual U.S. manufacturing output, not just per worker, is lower now than it was like in, I don't know what, 2005 or something. So where I'm coming from is, Suppose somebody said, like me says, you're right. You're putting your finger on a lot of genuine problems that a lot of right-wingers are just putting their heads in the sand. But how is it a solution or to like just tax America? Like that's what a tariff is, it's a tax. So you're saying there's all these other structural problems. The way we're going to fix America and make America great again is by putting a new tax on Americans. Well, so I, I think there are a few things to say about tariffs. The first is we could have an entire different discussion about fiscal policy. But for purposes of this discussion, I think it's important to sort of hold fiscal policy neutral. So the argument for or against tariffs can't be, well, it's a new tax, because you could take the enormous revenue raised from tariffs. One thing people don't appreciate is how much, <laughs> how much revenue you can raise from tariffs. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. for a good part of the country's history, the federal government was funded solely by tariffs. And you can use that to offset some tax on something you don't want to be taxing. So I think it's important for purposes of evaluating tariffs as trade policy to stipulate that it is going to be revenue neutral, meaning okay. you can okay. choose your tax. Let's say we can eliminate the capital gains tax and we can eliminate, pick whatever tax you think is worse. In fiscal terms, I would say tariffs are a better place than those to use as a tax base. Taken, though, as a distortion in the market. So, you know, as compared to other places you could put taxes, how should we think about tariffs? It seems to me that the fundamental case for it is that we recognize that there is value to domestic production. That is, that at the end of the day, we have a whole other podcast on why I hate the phrase market failure and think it, it does mm -hmm. way too much work. But that at the end of the day, other things equal we actually have a preference for production that happens in this country that markets will not of their own accord reflect. That the market seeking to sort of use price signals to optimize efficiency and maximize consumer welfare could not care less where something is made. But that as Americans, and, and if we are American policymakers, 
we actually do care at least a little bit. And that's for a few reasons. One is that manufacturing jobs are actually in a lot of, of ways good jobs and manufacturing also generally speaking, tends to have a higher multiplier effect, meaning it spawns more associated economic activity up and downstream in supply chains. Relatedly, I think manufacturing as the heart of the industrial commons is vitally important to innovation. One of the things more and more people are acknowledging is that the, well, we'll just design here and build somewhere else can work for a little while, but it is not a sustainable long-term strategy that engineering and then research ultimately do tend to follow manufacturing. And then the third, that manufacturing is a place where I think you actually tend to get a lot of productivity growth out of. That, that if you want your economy to be on a healthy long-term trajectory for economic growth, you actually want to have a strong manufacturing base and a dollar of manufacturing and a dollar of haircutting are not equivalent. And so for all of those reasons, now, we could also do an entire national security case. I think that's almost cheating and too easy. So I'm, mm. I'm putting national security to the side for the moment and talking purely in economic terms for the sort of employment and local or regional economy health, for the innovation and growth perspective, and therefore ultimately for the health of the national economy, you actually care. And if you care and the price system and market isn't going to care, then Generally speaking, what we say is that there is a role for policymakers in addressing that. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Okay. Again, let's just focus and I'm fine if we even just take the whole rest of this because this is really the, the crux of the matter and I want us to get down not that we're necessarily going to agree, but like I want to know exactly what your views are on this. So, yeah, let's put aside the, the security. Not that that's unimportant, but that's a separate thing about national security. And you could make an argument that, oh, yeah, the Department of Defense should subsidize certain key things to keep them up and running, put them on mothballs maybe during peacetime, whatever. You know, I get that. Let's put that aside. Just purely in terms of we're just talking about economic growth and the, just the economic well-being of our citizenry and stuff like that. Are you okay? If within the borders of the U.S., if manufacturing tends to be clustered in a certain region and like, so, you know, a certain area has most of the manufacturing jobs, whereas other areas have the grow the oranges and other areas grow the, the wheat and stuff like that. Is, are you okay with if like efficiency is allowed to kind of predominate internally? Yes, generally speaking. Okay. And so then if you looked over at Europe, then and drew a border of like a land area that was kind of the size of the U.S., if each individual European country followed your advice, wouldn't Europe as a whole be poorer than you're agreeing the U.S. should be? In other words, like if each European nation had its own internal policies, and no, we need, you know, for Germany to be strong, we got to have our own manufacturing base. And for France to be strong, we got to have our manufacturing base. And if they just each kept doing that, wouldn't that mean that Europe as a whole wouldn't be as rich then as the U.S.? Well, I think Europe's a really interesting case in this respect. The move toward a common market there, I think, has had some real benefits and also certainly some real costs. I think, generally speaking, having relatively free trade among countries of what I would say relatively equal development levels is a good thing mm -hmm. and enhances welfare. And it goes a little bit back to your question about where would it be concentrated even within the U.S., which is that just empirically, when you have a market, whatever its size, of relatively equal development levels operating under a unified legal and economic framework, you do get things like manufacturing that are fairly well distributed. There are obviously some places where it will make more or less sense but you do get it well distributed across a country. And so I think in Europe, to the extent that you have a set of countries that are at similar levels of development, and to the extent that they are within the EU willing to commit to a common regulatory and, and industrial policy system, you can do quite well merging into a common market. And for the most part, I would say the U.S. should have relatively free trade with Europe. 
The problem is that when you zoom out and look at the global economy generally, that is not the situation at all. Okay, so can we isolate, again, I want to, is the problem with China, for example, in other words, that you think unfettered free trade with China right now would be a bad idea. How much of that is driven because of their, like, cheating, like with their government doing all kinds of stuff that you think is not kosher? Or how much of it is just, well, no, because their per capita standard of living is lower than ours. Like, it just doesn't make sense to make our economies merge without a filter. Like, so in other words, if the Chinese government saw the light and they stopped subsidizing, they stopped putting their own retaliatory tariffs or whatever in place and just had open free trade and they were doing laissez-faire, it's just they were starting out where they were poorer than the average American. Would you be okay with having free trade with them then? Or would it still be, well, no, they're not really up to our level of development, so it would be bad? Well, if you generally had China operating its market on the same terms that the U.S. operates its market, then differences in development level aren't necessarily a problem. And I think, you know, this is a really key point that I'm always perplexed by, how it's missed in the economic literature, is we colloquially use the term cheap labor mm -hmm. as, as a description as, of an advantage that China might have or a reason someone might move manufacturing there. I think it's really important to notice that cheap labor isn't per se an advantage. If we actually take seriously, and <laughs> frankly, I don't, but if, if we want to stick with kind of the basic economic model, that workers are all going to be paid the marginal product of their labor, mm -hmm. then cheap labor isn't an advantage. It just means extremely unproductive labor. And so you're somewhat indifferent from paying a dollar an hour for people whose productivity supports a dollar an hour versus paying $20 an hour for people whose productivity supports $20 an hour. When we say cheap labor, what we actually mean is you can go set up shop in China and pay that worker a lower share of their output, essentially, than you have to pay a worker in the U.S. That's the only reason there's actually an economic case for doing it. And if that's what's going on, then what's happening is not actually a preference for the lower wage. What you have is a form of arbitrage that is simply seeking out, in essence, the more exploitable labor. And that is something I think we should be very skeptical of, recognizing that, in fact, the entire premise of democratic capitalism, certainly here in the United States, is that we are not going to <laughs> let you go off and find more exploitable labor to use in lieu of the labor that you have here. So are you saying one of the reasons that you would want U.S. policy to put roadblocks in the way of like U.S. firms from outsourcing their manufacturing operations to China is your concern for the Chinese worker? And you don't want him to be exploited? No, my concern for the American worker being asked to compete with the exploitable worker. Okay. Okay. I got it. All right. I would have a lot to say on that, but with the interest of time, let me switch. I do want to hit one other thing about I'm talking about wages, so it kind of flows nicely. The other huge, and again, the point here is, folks, not for us, Warren and I, to be debating. It's I just want to get him to answer the objections I've seen level at him. So you've got some charts in your book. And again, this was another part where I thought you were wrong. And I was like, no, there's no way that figure is accurate. And I went and looked it up and, oh yeah, it is accurate. Showing how little the inflation adjusted wage of like a non-supervisory worker has gone up. So I forget what the starting point was, but it was a very tepid growth. And I was amazed. I, thought, I just thought the number was going to be bigger. So one of the pushbacks I've seen against you know, your stats and charts along those lines to show how little progress the typical U.S. worker, sort of blue-collar worker has made over the last, whatever, 40 years, is to say, oh, your figures are just looking at wages. You need to include all compensation, which means things like paid health care premiums and things like that, that workers are getting paid a lot more than simply the take-home wage. So I know what I would say if I were you, but I'm just curious, like, how would you respond to something like that? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason we don't include it in just the very basic figure is because the basic figure is one that you can go check very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. The figure as reported statistically is that wage figure. I think there is good work to be done, and many people have done good work layering in some of those other factors. The reality that tends to surprise people is that the benefits number isn't that big. There is some improvement there, but if you look at what share 
of compensation was benefits at that starting point back in the 70s. And then fast forward and look at it at what it is today, particularly when you're looking at that like median non-supervisory worker, the increase is just not that big. I mean, and, and let's say even it were 10%, right? So let's say in the 70s, 10% of your compensation were benefits, and now it's 20%. On one hand, that's a very significant shift. On the other hand, if what you're saying is therefore, well, rather than wages having gone nowhere in 40 years, total compensation has gone up 10%, that's still pretty lousy. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that, in fact, it's worse because your median non-supervisory worker does not have the kind of gold-plated, super expensive, employer-provided insurance plan that the folks writing about this stuff do. And so what you actually have to start to factor in if you want to sort of correct for the gap is government support, right? If you start layering in, well, now these guys have access to subsidized Obamacare plans, plus look at all, we've reduced their taxes and increased their tax credits and so forth. Those things certainly do have a significant impact. And I think that speaks to the fact that, as I always acknowledge, in terms of material living standards, I think there's no question that folks are better off than they ever were. But I think it's very important to be able to acknowledge both that through all sorts of approaches, including a lot of redistribution, we've managed to improve people's material living standards, while also noticing that we have run an economy that has totally failed to extend broad-based gains in prosperity through actual engagement with the market. And as progressives, people might say, well, that's fine, and we're, we're just going to keep doing that. But for the right, I think it poses a big problem because you might either be quite libertarian, in which case you would say, well, we don't want to provide that support, mm -hmm. <laughs> which isn't a great answer. Or I hope you'd be conservative and say, we really want markets to be the thing that provides these outcomes. And that does ensure that workers are able to support their families in a middle-class standard. And what the data show is that that is not the case to the extent it used to be, that we have been going in the wrong direction. And that is where all of our work comes in on this idea of what we called rebuilding American capitalism, not throwing away capitalism, but to the contrary, recognizing that it used to be working better than it is now. And we have to understand what it is about the rules, the constraints, the institutions that, that actually shape capitalism that do make it work well, and therefore what choices we have to be making differently to get back on track. Okay, yeah. I guess I would add, I would second what you're saying, and my pushback to some of people say, right, like I, as an economist, I do think firms are paying the marginal product to the worker. And so, you know, if, if it hasn't gone up, and so partly it is that, oh yes, they had to pay more for healthcare premiums, but you're right. Like I just know from my own experience, what I see, like what the, how much the employer is paying on my behalf for healthcare, or sorry, health insurance, I should be saying all, all along. And yet I still have a huge deductible. It's not like I just walk in and get whatever I want for my family and we don't pay a dime out of pocket. That's not true at all. It's just health insurance has gotten ridiculously expensive. And I know, you know there's more MRIs and stuff now than in 1985, but still it seems like there's something screwy. And I would say it's not the free market's fault. Like there's been a lot of government intervention, but the typical middle-class American doesn't care what's going on. They just know this is not working. I'm working a lot and it seems like we can't get ahead. Yeah. And well, yeah, I just want to pick up quickly on one element of that. We could do a whole hour on the sort of marginal product argument and, mm -hmm. and the reasons I don't think it's true. But to the extent it is true, I think that almost makes the story worse, right? If you have this like progressive argument that, well, what's just going on is evil capitalists aren't sharing the product of labor with the workers, mm -hmm. in a sense, that's almost like easier to solve. You could almost say, okay, well, like, how do we just get a larger share to the workers? I think there's actually a lot to the point you just made, which is, well, part of the reason wages are, aren't going up is because productivity growth hasn't been well distributed. We have a, a very small share of workers who have experienced extraordinary gains in productivity, while a huge share of the workforce really hasn't for decades. And to me, that is not an excuse. If, if anything, mm -hmm. that's an even more harsher indictment of how our economy has been operating. And to the point you made earlier about just the manufacturing data, one of the statistics that I've been looking at recently that I can't get over is it's not just that productivity growth has stalled, 
productivity growth in manufacturing has been negative for a, a decade now. You need more workers to create the same stuff in America today than you did to create that stuff 10 years ago. I don't think you can reconcile that with a healthy form of capitalism. And while I agree there's plenty of room for regulatory reform, I don't think you can square that with an argument that, well, that just happened because somehow government got in the way. I think there has to be an explanation that recognizes that that can, in fact, be perfectly consistent with a lot of capitalists making a lot of money. And that if you want to make capitalism work, you actually have to get the pursuit of profit aligned better with the public interest so that the things that people choose to do with their capital to maximize their return are also things that are going to redound to the benefit of the typical worker and, and ultimately the nation. Yeah. So just maybe to sum up, I think you and I are largely in agreement with the diagnosis of the problem and that for, again, people on the right who are like, oh, what's he talking about? You know, I'm much better off than my parents were. And like, that's not, you're not listening if that's what you're saying. Like, I don't think, Warren, you're denying that there's many respects in which living now is better than 1950, but something is screwed up with the American way of life or the American economy. Let's put it that way. And we're disagreeing maybe about what caused it. But so what is, what would you say? And I'll let you have the last, you go as long as you, as, or as short as you want. But besides trade policy, what sorts of things as the American compass or you personally, what are you suggesting people on the right ought to be reconsidering about their normal mix of policy recommendations? Yeah, it's a great question. And I should say, thank you for this conversation. This has been a, a ton of fun, but also just appreciate the spirit of sort of putting this argument out there. The way we think about it is, as I was alluding to a bit a moment ago, that capitalism is a system. And that I think one thing about the market fundamentalism on the right that drives me most nuts is there's this popular talking point that capitalism is just another word for economic freedom. Mm -hmm. And what that presupposes is sort of, well, if you truly just had everybody walking around freely doing whatever they wanted, it would generate the kinds of outcomes that, that we're looking for. And I think it's really important to understand that capitalism as a system requires certain things to be in place. And that if you go all the way back to Adam Smith in the very paragraph where he describes the invisible hand and sort of somewhat contra Hayek in the self-regulating market, the invisible hand sort of sounds like something magical and mysterious, but he's not describing a magical, mysterious force that just ensures things turn out well. He actually starts with a bunch of prerequisites, one of which is specifically noting that he's assuming people will prefer to invest domestically to elsewhere. Another of which is an assumption that in pursuit of profit, people will invest in those ways that maximize output. And what he's saying is that if those conditions hold, essentially, if people trying to maximize profit do so by investing domestically in, <laughs> with, with a goal of maximizing output, then, as if by an, an invisible hand, their pursuit of their private interest will also advance the public interest. And I think it's a good way to understand what has happened in recent decades. And again, not ruling out the government has screwed up all sorts of stuff. It's absolutely also the case that we have all sorts of counterproductive regulation. But I think also what you see is that the most attractive ways to earn a lot of money have become ways that don't necessarily accrue to the common good. So globalization has allowed offshoring as a way that can really attractively improve the cash flows of your corporation without doing necessarily anything to the benefit of workers or the nation. You know, likewise, we look a lot at, at what has happened on Wall Street and the extent to which you see less investment in pursuit of profit flowing into actually building things in the real world and a lot more into financial engineering and speculation. And these have all become excellent ways to generate a lot of profit that are not well connected to generating the kinds of outcomes we actually need from our market economy. And so what we focus on as the response to this is two things. One is what we call productive markets, which is just the idea that if markets are not necessarily productive, what are the requirements to make them productive? And so what we've been talking about on trade is important. And ultimately, what we see as the case for tariffs is focused on bringing trade back into balance. That if you actually have, and not with a particular country, but globally, if you have balanced trade, well, then what that means is you might be doing lots of stuff in other countries where it's more efficient to do that, but you're trading that for other things it's really efficient to do here. 
And that can be a great deal for everybody. What we have right now, and you mentioned this with the government debt point, is doing stuff elsewhere and then trading it here in return for piles of paper that say, we will pay you later. Mm -hmm. And that is not how capitalism is supposed to work. Neither Smith nor Ricardo would have said that trade is going to be welfare enhancing under those conditions. We focus a lot on financialization and the question of what do you actually have to do in financial markets that is going to be regulatory, that recognizes that there's a lot of activity that is not productive. And how do you focus investment back on things that are actually not just going to be profitable, but also accrue to the, the good of, of workers in the nation? And then we think about industrial policy, which is, in, in a sense, the flip side of the tariffs and the recognition that if being able to actually produce things in America is a, a substantive good, then we should be thinking about how to support that and, and make that an attractive thing to do. So that's one big bucket is productive markets. And then the second is supportive communities, which is the sort of micro yin to the macro yang. You know, it's important to have the constraints and the rules that are going to make markets productive, you also need to support people and prepare them to succeed in those markets. And one thing that drives me nuts about conservatives is that they focus intensively on the question of family when it comes to arguing in favor of the family and noticing how crucial that is to people's success in life. But then you flip over to the economic context and suddenly everybody is this just this sort of free agent Adam who is perfectly optimized and ready to take advantage of, of the market. And that's just wrong. If you want markets to work well for people, you have to actually prepare people to succeed in markets. You have to actually be willing to invest in economic terms, in supporting family formation and the raising of kids. You have to have a public education system that is actually going to prepare people for productive work. And we think labor unions are a really interesting piece of this, not unions as they operate today, mm -hmm. But the idea of a labor movement, the idea of actually workers having collective power and solidarity and, and the ability to sort of advance their interests against employers in a way that they often struggle to do as individuals. So that's sort of a maybe too long run through of, of all the sorts of stuff that we think about. But hopefully that connects for folks from some of the philosophical stuff that, that we were talking about to where we think the rubber meets the road on, on how policy has to look different. Let me just, people are going to revolt from my podcast if I don't ask the follow-up. As far as the labor thing, so yeah, from a pure libertarian perspective, there's nothing wrong with labor unions per se, just like if a bunch of employers want to get together, even if they want to have a blacklist strictly, you know, you might say that's not honorable or something, but you know, there's nothing that shouldn't be illegal in pure libertarian land. Likewise, if workers want to get, if they all want to agree to strike, where the issue comes down though is if a group of workers is striking and then the employer says, okay, well, we're going to hire somebody else then. And then the people trying to cross the picket lines get the crap kicked out of them. And then the government kind of looks the other way nowadays because they want to be in solidarity with labor. Can you just speak to that? Like when you say not labor, you like what specifically, and there's lots of stuff like with the NLRB, things like compelling, like, oh, if 51% of the workers vote for something, then the employer has to do the same deal for everybody, things like that. Can you just speak a little bit more about what would be different in your ideal framework so that the labor is beneficial, the labor movement is beneficial? Yeah, well, I, I just say certainly no, no disagreement that we should not have people cracking people's heads. I think that would be a strong point of agreement. I think where we might differ a little bit is that I would think of the labor movement more as an institution. Mm -hmm. And going back a little bit to that idea of capitalism isn't just economic freedom, that I don't think the ideal model of labor relations that's actually going to benefit workers in particular is one in which, well, sure, you can get together and try to form a union, but employers can get together and do this and that. Because I do think it's important to recognize there is a fundamental imbalance of power in the labor market, which mm -hmm. at the end of the day comes down to the fact that your typical business owner can go a lot longer without... <laughs> Without right. employees, then your typical worker can go without a paycheck. Right. And again, this, you know, Adam Smith wrote about this. John Stuart Mill wrote about this, that this is a basic problem. And so I would expect libertarians to disagree with conservatives about this to some extent. But I think for conservatives who want to support the formation of institutions such as workers who can 
operate collectively and in a coordinated fashion, I think you do actually need some rules to structure that and in a sense to require employers to engage with rather than try to subvert such institutions. And so what we see as the ideal really is, and as differs from today, is a couple things. One is just more options. The current structure in the U.S. is you form a, an NLRA union as defined in 1935, or you get nothing. Mm-hmm. The NLRA union, even stipulating it has its uses today, is not the right model for most people. And, and there's a reason that has nothing to do with evil employers, that the traditional union is a diminishing force in society. So we just spend a lot of time pointing to all the different systems of labor around the world, because I think Americans be very provincial in how they think things might work, and just understanding that there are lots of variables you can play with. And in particular, one that we think is really useful to focus on is the idea that a union doesn't have to be something you fight for company by company, have a vote, 50% plus one say yes, now you're a union, 49% say yes, there's nothing. Europe has a very different model where unions are actually outside the specific workplace. So all of Mm -hmm. Europe is right to work. Nobody has to join a union if they don't want to. Okay. But conversely, there are unions that represent workers that you can be a part of it if you want to that are essentially guaranteed a role in bargaining with employers, often across an entire industry. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, what that looks like is less the sort of knockdown, drag out negotiation that we see here and more a form of kind of quasi-public or private regulation, where instead of having the government make all the rules at the federal level, you have representatives of workers and representatives of industry making rules for an industry. I think that's a much better model. The other thing it does is it really frees up the union to provide things we otherwise expect government to. So in Europe, a lot of times, you get your unemployment benefits through a union. Training comes through a union. If you think about interest in, you know, portable benefits and so forth in Mm -hmm. America— make an awful lot more sense for workers to be part of a work organization that provided their health care. Right. So that's what we're talking about is not, you know, certainly not the Democrat model of like, how do we just force more people in today's unions? It's how do you take seriously the idea that worker power is a good thing, that you need to actually build institutions to support that, and you want to build ones that are actually going to do that effectively rather than ones that just sort of siphon money to the Democratic Party. Right. Okay, well, I've kept you along over here, and I don't want your <laughs> I've kept union your represent- listeners too long. Yeah, I don't want your union rep to come and crack my skull from exploiting you. So, folks, I didn't refer to it too much specifically, but what the context for this has been this new handbook that the American Compass has put out called Rebuilding American Capitalism. It's a handbook for conservative policymakers. And my guest has been Oren Cass. So, Oren, thanks so much for your time. This was really great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, folks, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.